As the song goes, if you can make it here, you'll make it anywhere. A lot of people come to New York City to follow their dreams, but the road to fulfillment can sometimes be a bumpy one. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Patti Smith started as a fledgling artist trying to make it on the streets of the East Village in the 1960s. She, of course, achieved greatness as a musician and author, but Smith had some pretty strong words for aspiring artists considering a move to the Big Apple today. New York has closed itself off to uh, the young and the struggling, but... There's always other cities. I don't know, Detroit, Poughkeepsie, Newark. You know, you have to find the new place because New York City has been taken away from you. So my advice is find a new city. Smith's comment got us thinking about the challenges people sometimes face as they try to make it in New York City, including artists. Our first guest this morning is David Terry. David's the director of programs and curator for the New York Foundation for the Arts. David, thanks for taking the time. You're very welcome. The notion of the struggling or starving artist has become somewhat of a cliché, but what's the reality here in New York City for artists trying to make it? Well, I, I think there's, there's several realities. Um, I'm also an artist myself. So uh, those struggles I've been through and still continue to go through. So in New York City, uh, the, I, I have to agree with you that that whole notion of the, the starving artist um, is pretty much absurd. Um, I think it it's probably should be more considered the notion of the struggling artist or the artist you know, struggling with challenges to be able to produce their work, have funds to be able to continue to produce their work, and an audience um, to support their work as well, and a culture that would do that additionally. What would you say are among the biggest challenges for artists in New York City today? Well, when you're saying artists, you're, you're talking about all kinds of disciplines. So these are literary artists, they're performance artists, there are um, two-dimensional static artists, sculpture, everything. So within each discipline, there are different challenges. There are obviously overall challenges, and those are uh, funding and resources. And some disciplines have greater resources, and some have fewer. And so the, the greatest, obviously the greatest challenge is, is funding. And we're in a, a culture where the appreciation, the understanding, and the importance of, of the arts are really being um, diminished. What about simply affording a place to do your work or affording a place to live for that matter? That is huge as well. Um, you know, a lot of artists now with, with, uh, with different technologies, artists are more often having to work where they live. And so it becomes uh, a, a difficult challenge to be able to se- separate your work and live space. But when you have no other option and rents, especially here in New York, are on the rise again and, uh, from being <laughs> um, kind of unaffordable anyway, it, be- it creates a, a really difficult challenge. I know many artists that don't have studios who have to work uh, alternatively, either virtually or Maybe they do work that is um, assembled together in some way. Uh, they, they are having to adapt to the challenges. But the, the great thing about artists is that they are adaptable. Now, of course, throughout history, there have been neighborhoods that were very welcoming to artists, easy for artists to move in because rents were affordable at one time, like Greenwich mm-hmm. Village. 
Many of those neighborhoods are now very expensive, a lot of luxury housing. Have artists simply been priced out, and if so, where are they going? They most definitely have been priced out. Um, you've seen, and and also organizations that support the arts have been priced out. I mean, you've seen what happened in Soho, and then all the galleries moved to Chelsea uh, about 15 years ago, and now those galleries are being priced out by luxury boutiques. And so, like the artists, um, the gallery and the businesses who support artists are having to um, relocate. The same thing is happening in Dumbo, where our offices are located. So they're moving further east, out uh, like East East Williamsburg, Bushwick area. I know a lot of artists are moving further north. Uh, I think there's some spots in Harlem that are still affordable. Uh, there are some organizations that, that provide affordable workspace, like Shishama, who's um, one of our partners. And artists are also now moving, um, you know, going across the Third Avenue Bridge into the South Bronx. A lot of artists are, are, are going up there because it's still affordable, relatively. What kinds of services do you provide to help artists in New York City? We provide many. Um, I think one of the most important services that we provide is information and artist training. So we provide information on where artists can find funding, where they can find resources, where they can find opportunities. And when I say resources, I, I mean funding uh, funding resources, support resources, uh, particularly after uh, Hurricane Sandy. We do have some individual granting awards for individual artists uh, for New York, based in New York, in the, in the entire state. So uh, we are really a, um, a service organization in the sense that, that we provide information and services and support. It's a long-held belief that tough times fuel the creative process and produce more meaningful and innovative work. David, what do you think about that? To be a great artist, do you need to suffer for your craft? Uh, I don't think you do necessarily at all. I think... Um, you know, everyone's creative process is unique. And so, and everyone's life experience is unique. And some use that as fuel to, uh, to drive their work. Some use it as a way to reflect. David Terry, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. David Terry is the Director of Programs and Curator for the New York Foundation for the Arts. For more information, you can visit nyfa.org. The signs of people struggling in New York City are sometimes literally right under our noses, but they can easily go unnoticed as we rush to our next business meeting or dinner reservation. I'm talking about the cardboard signs homeless individuals use to make a plea for help. The so-called Starving Artists Project reframes these signs into works of art as a way to bring about change. The creators of this initiative are with me now in the studio. My name is Nick Zafonte, and I'm the co-founder and co-creative director of the Starving Artists Project. My name is Thompson Harrell, and I'm co-founder and co-creator of the Starving Artists Project as well. Nick, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having us. Thompson, welcome to you. Thank you. First of all, Nick, what is the Starving Artists Project? The Starving Artists Project is a social initiative um, with the aim of taking the, the artwork and the messages of the local homeless community and then giving it a larger platform to inspire greater action. So, Thompson, how did the idea for this all come about? Well, uh, Nick and I both are, our background is in advertising, and we make messages and create content for a living. And we had the idea when we both were walking around concepting one day that we noticed that the homeless community 
they sort of are doing the similar a similar type of action. They're holding what seems like uh, pieces of cardboard and words on them, but if you actually look a little deeper, you'll find that they're actually you know beautiful pieces of creation, and they've got things that they want to express, things that they want to say, and things that they want to communicate to the world. Unfortunately, what ends up taking place is uh, we just walk by. We sort of ignore that. I've, I've been guilty of that. I think a lot of people that we've spoken to uh, throughout this project are, are guilty of it. And it's not that, you know, we're not uh, giving people. It's not that we're not charitable people. It's just, you know, the idea of it kind of makes us a little bit uncomfortable. So what we wanted to do was alleviate that and, um, you know, really get to know the homeless, really introduce ourselves and, and, and take their creations and take their signs and redirect them to a to an environment and a forum where it'd be much more appropriate and a little bit more um, people would be more at ease taking in this content and taking in these beautiful pieces of self-expression and art and uh, we were able to redirect it to a, to a gallery and uh, get a get a very nice sized crowd to sort of come in and take in the art at their own pace and at their own leisure. Was there one sign in particular that drew you in? Because as you say, we walk past these signs day in and day out. Sometimes we take notice, sometimes we don't. But was there one sign that really said to you, this sign speaks to me, I can see that there's deeper meaning here? Yeah, there was actually a woman that had this really heartfelt sign where she was referring to the fact that she had HIV and she was HIV positive and that she doesn't want to really take on prostitution anymore and she was looking for a little bit of help but also a little bit of recognition Um, I think that you know what's interesting about these signs is there really is sort of a dimension of let's say 20 inches by 10 inches that these people can really uh, contain a lot of their their hurting or a lot of their their hope and this is this is where she she was able to express herself and a lot of the times people don't necessarily take the time to read something like that but it it seems like a a crisis for her and by this being a sign that we could put into the gallery a lot more eyes many more eyes were able to see this and recognize her situation how do homeless individuals react to you photographing them and their signs how does that all work do you approach them and ask them or do you just do it we teamed up with the new york city coalition against hunger who puts in touch with holy apostle soup kitchen um, and then we we volunteered there for two weeks where we met a lot of the the working poor and homeless people who who go there every day for their meals. And it was a slow process of uh, volunteering with them, becoming more friendly with them, and then having real conversation with them. Um, instead of just asking for their signs, it was more about relating to them as people and then hearing their stories. And then what we found was that there was there was actually a big range. A lot of people were so excited to be both photographed and have their artwork displayed. Some other people would rather just have their artwork, that their, their creativity speak for themselves and, and were a little camera shy. So we, we found that, you know, everyone's personality is a little different. Some people were ashamed of their situation. Others were proud of it and, and thought that it was a great platform to kind of share, share their message with the world. So, Thompson, you're winning their trust. You're earning their trust. Absolutely. And I think that... For us, what was what was extremely important when we took on this project is, uh, you know, our fear of exploitation. And that was something that we absolutely never wanted to be displaying. And we didn't we didn't we certainly didn't want the um, the, the homeless to uh, feel that they were being exploited. And that's uh, an, uh, one of the reasons and one of our you know creative decisions was to team up with Andrew Zuckerman who is a uh, world-renowned, incredible photographer who we had a working relationship with uh, prior to this project. And we felt like he was um, 
you know, he was an incredible choice to approach because he is very famous for the stark white background, and he has an amazing way of being able to separate um, an, inv- an individual from their environment. So no longer were we able to uh, see these um, these people uh, against the background that we, we so often see them in. They're now separated, and they, they're only uh, there uh, by themselves against a stark white background. And when, when that happens, we're able to really maintain uh, their dignity and then also allow them to sort of be uh, photographed in a very profound way where we can we can see them for who they are as an individual. I think sometimes people question how truthful the signs are, whether people are just trying to tug on our heartstrings to get some money. How important was it for you to determine whether what was written on that sign was actually fact? I think for us, the the idea of the signs was we, we wanted to, to collect people's honest creations, honest expressions. And from our conversations with everyone there, it was not like we just kind of grabbed people, oh, no, you know, his sign is interesting, his sign is interesting. After, you know, over those two weeks having conversations with people, you find that everyone has their own stories. There, there are some people who actually um, were having job problems and then slowly lost their job and then lost their apartment and now are homeless. As Thompson pointed out, some people were in very dire situations. So I think it became a thing that 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 we 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 were pretty friendly with a lot of the people there, so it was obvious that that their stories were true and heartfelt. Um, a lot of them were lighthearted about it. A lot of them weren't so so down on it. So, but 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 it, it's it's very important that that like what they're expressing is actually their true situation, and, and as opposed to some gimmick, some, some some clever little hook. The one thing that I was just going to add is um, for all the money that was raised at the Dumbo Art Center uh, that day, we built actually a four foot tall change cup. And so what, what we were able to do was inspire people to provide donations based off of what they saw and based off of uh, what they were moved by. And um, through the collection of that donation uh, as a whole, we were able to sort of close the loop on the project of it being the Starving Artist Project and then uh, collectively as a whole then take that um, collection of money and donate it to the charities that we had teamed up with. So we knew um, firsthand that that, um, that money was now being put towards food and, and, and um, being put towards the charities that um, are helping the homeless get up off their feet and, and try to like get jobs. But we knew exactly where that money was going. It wasn't a situation, even if maybe there was a, uh, an opportunity or a situation that the, the sign was, wasn't honest, um, we knew exactly where the money would be going afterwards. When was that exhibit? The first exhibit ran January, uh, the first week of January of last year. And now it's online. And then, and then since then, now it's a it's a permanent online collection, so people can actually browse through. I think there's about fifty signs on on, on the website, as well as about thirty portraits. Thompson, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thompson Harrell and Nick Safante are the creators of the Starving Artists Project. You can check it out online at starvingartistsproject.com. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. This morning, we're looking at the challenges sometimes associated with making it in New York City. The Food Bank for New York City is quite aware of the struggles many New Yorkers face. Margaret Purvis is the group's president and CEO. Margaret, thanks for being with us on Cityscape. Thank you. When it comes to struggling to put food on the table in New York City, what do we know about who's struggling? Well, we know that more than a third of New York City residents, we're talking about this is about 2.6 million New Yorkers, are having problems affording food. Um, 
at our network of charities, which is about a thousand soup kitchens, pantries, and even schools, we're seeing about one and a half million who are actually relying on emergency food. Now, it's one thing to hear the numbers, but can you put a face on these numbers for us? Who are these people? It's pretty much almost, you know, anybody. We say things like, you know, it's your neighbor um, because it's more and more seniors. Sometimes it's hard for people to honestly believe that hunger exists in a city like New York. So we try to give them a number that people can understand. And the number in our recent study basically was about $50,000. And we saw that that kind of creates a line between those who may find themselves struggling to afford food and those who don't. If you add children, if you're making under $50,000, plus you add children, or you're living on a fixed income, which will also often be under $50,000, it helps to create more of a picture so you can see that really anyone can find themselves Uh, being a victim of hunger. So even a single individual earning $50,000 a year could be struggling to eat. Absolutely. It also depends on, obviously, neighborhood, community. You know, if you are living in the city, if you're living in Manhattan, it can be almost impossible. For us, what we wanted to be able to have people understand is that urban poverty is very different. You know, it's not like, you know, the things that you see on the early morning television and, you know, in third world countries and things of that nature. It really is your neighbor. It really is a person who could just be beside you on the subway. I always tell people, you know, we hear the story about, you know, the song that so encapsulates the city, which is, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Well, we are at the story about what does it look like when you don't? Mm. And what's the road to not making it here? Um, And more and more, it's things like just trying to afford food. Some of it is about the fact that the cost of food has gone up so dramatically. Um, Sometimes it's even about the season, You know, for families, the hardest time for parents with children who are making under $50,000 is the summertime because during that time, they then often miss two meals that they were relying on in the free and reduced lunch. So we try to just try to take out some of the mystery of hunger and how it impacts so many New Yorkers. I understand that women are affected more here in New York City than men. In fact, on your website, you say among women in New York City, 42 percent experienced difficulty affording food in 2010, and that was up 50 percent since 2003. Absolutely. You know, it's so funny that when people, it's not really funny, but when people talk about, you know, all of this kind of silliness about, you know, uh, who's hungry and food stamps and all these kind of negative connotations that they will often attach to what is simply hunger. You know, I always tell people, so did you know that the majority of people on food stamps are children? And did you know that the second highest group are seniors? So we're talking about our most vulnerable. We're either talking about people who are cannot work or we're talking about people who have worked, they put their time in, and now it's just hard to stretch your retirement dollars in this city. What kind of bump did you see after Superstorm Sandy? Oh, wow. Huge bump. The um, unemployment rates more than doubled. Um, you know, we actually just wrote a, um, a letter to the editor um, in a, a local paper that, ha- that came out because they called it a blip, that the unemployment numbers after Sandy, oh, it was just a blip. It wasn't really that big. Um, it was certainly not a blip. Um, there's regularly, George, there's about 40,000 people in our homeless shelters. After 
Hurricane Sandy, that number doubled. And then you saw so many people to lose their jobs. Why did they lose their jobs? Because this is a city of hourly employees, you know, from waitresses. I mean, this is what people live on tips in the city. That's kind of the part, part of how it works. With Hurricane Sandy, when those subways did not were not working, that meant that people in communities far and wide could not get to those jobs. So when they called the unemployment number, oh, but then, you know, people went back to work. No, no, no. Unless you do a deep analysis to be able to say, did those people who lost their jobs get the new jobs? I can already tell you, no, they didn't. What kinds of services do you provide to help these individuals? Well, Food Bank for New York City is different from your typical food bank. I think all of your listeners should first know that, you know, inside of our city, um, you have the largest food bank in the world. Food Bank for New York City is the largest food bank in the world, and there is a food bank serving every major city around the country. The reason you have the largest food bank and the most robust food bank in the world in this city is because hunger in this city is worse than it is in most cities. So, I think that's that's key for people to understand. We do things a little differently. Yes, we distribute food. We distribute millions of pounds of food. But we also do other things. We also make sure that we try to find ways that will help people to not have to go to a soup kitchen. So we help people. Um, we do... Um, outreach for food stamps to help as many people get that so they can go to the grocery store to be able to shop for their families and get healthy healthy meals. The third thing we do is that we also provide tax services. There's a program called EITC, and it allows for different tax credits to go to impoverished families. So that is a third arm of the way we end hunger. To give you an example, Yes, we were able to do like almost 10 million pounds of food or 10 million meals for the families impacted by Sandy. These are the hardest hit zip codes, George. But more importantly, we also put $16 million worth of cash in the hands of families who were also hardest hit by Sandy. So for us, we see it's, you know, yes, we want to put something in your belly, but we also got to put some money in your pocket. What can people with more means do for people with less means, Margaret? Well, there's the first thing you can do. You know, I know people are going to think that I'm going to say give money, and I am going to say that. But before I say that, mm. I'm going to say give your voice. Speak up. Speak to your elected officials when you're hearing things about cuts to food stamps. Be offended that we would ever talk about balancing budgets on the backs of the poorest New Yorkers. The next thing you can do is, if you do have extra time, there are local soup kitchens, pantries in your neighborhood. You know, food bank serves every community. We can provide, we call it charity GPS. We can help you find a great location in your community where you can go and give some time. You can give food. You can give some hours. You can give encouragement. Obviously, uh, we certainly always need financial support. I would imagine a very good first step is to go to foodbanknyc.org, right? Absolutely go to foodbanknyc.org. There are so many ways that people can help. All you need to do is bring the interest in helping. That's all we need. Margaret, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Margaret Purvis is the president and CEO of the Food Bank for New York City. Finally this morning, we turn our attention to the struggles new immigrants can face in New York City. The city has long been a melting pot of different ethnicities, but newcomers still face a variety of challenges. 
With us on the phone now to talk about these difficulties is Angela Fernandez. She's the executive director of the Northern Manhattan Coalition for Immigrant Rights. Angela, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me on your show. What would you say immigrants in New York City are struggling with the most today? I think that immigrants in New York are uh, struggling with uh, the economic situation overall. It's um, something that is hitting the country, uh, but it does hit immigrants in particular. And New York City is a place where the standard of living is very high compared to the rest of the, rest of the country, yet uh, the minimum wage uh, is still very low. It's not considered a livable wage. Uh, and then, of course, immigrants, if uh, they have unscrupulous and abusive bosses, they may not even get paid a minimum wage. So are immigrants, would you say, taken advantage of much more than any other New Yorker? Yes, absolutely. Uh, one of the most extreme situations that we hear of is uh, where women in particular, immigrant women, will be working uh, under uh, very unsafe conditions and unsafe. And what I mean by that is that they may have a manager or a boss uh, who says, if you don't do certain things sexually, uh, then I will call ICE and have you deported. Wow. Is that and, the case? Yes. We have heard cases um, uh, of that sort. What kind of and, work is that happening in? happen anywhere. It could be a factory. It could be in a store. It could be, it could be anywhere. So this is just an, ex- an example of the way in which an immigrant can be taken advantage of because of the danger of being deported. What would you say are the biggest stumbling blocks to employment for immigrants here? Well, one of the things that we have uh, seen, and, and this is um, in, in the, even in the documented uh, immigrant population, there are um, what's called employment agencies, uh, where um, they present themselves um, uh, as, as, a, as a company that if you pay them a certain amount of money, $100, $150, that they will then find you a job. And that in and of itself is, is very unfortunate because no one should have to pay a company $150 to find them a job when they could actually find it on their own. And then many times those agencies work in cahoots with the boss that's hiring them to take advantage of, of, of the employee situation where the boss will say, you know, I'm not able to pay you your salary up front because I have to pay this agency. And so we have found that actually happens even with the documented population. Your organization, Angela, was founded back in 1982. Yes. Are the struggles any different today than they were back then when you formed? They're very different now, and they're different in multiple ways. Uh, number one, back in 1982 and all the way up through until the 90s, the cost of becoming a U.S. citizen, uh, so going from being a green card holder to, to, to um, naturalized, to become a U.S. citizen, the payment to the government was very low. Now it costs over $600 to become a U.S. citizen, and that jump in price happened very recently, and it's been uh, and it's it's been devastating. And so that's one thing that's different. The other thing that's very different is that after 1996, the types of mandatorily deportable convictions expanded to include the most minor types of crimes, uh, and to include convictions where a person may not even spend a day in jail for that. Um, And it doesn't even matter if the conviction happened 20 years ago. So there's this extremity and this this punitiveness since 1996 with regard to our immigration laws um, that has really devastated our community because we represent people both in Washington Heights and in the Bronx. And as we know, the 1980s and 90s, Washington Heights was ground zero for the war on drugs. So you had 
many um, people, mostly young men, being arrested and many of them taking pleas that then came to haunt them later when they went and applied for citizenship. What would you say is the number one reason that immigrants show up at your doorstep? So we provide family-based immigration services. Uh, So we do citizenship applications, family-based petitions. Uh, So we're working primarily with individuals um, who either they themselves are green card holders or they are people who are related to U.S. citizens or um, U.S. citizens who can petition for them. Uh, So that's the number one reason in terms of of legal services. The other reason that we have many people coming to to our office are people actually who, as I mentioned before, are green card holders with past criminal convictions who want to apply for citizenship, and then they need to be uh, screened and, and assessed um, uh, very closely um, to make sure they're getting the proper advice as to whether they should apply for citizenship or not. Then we do get people who actually um, uh, uh, have been um, uh, given an order to uh, notice to appear because they're in deportation proceedings. And then we work with people who are in deportation proceedings, many of them also green card holders. Angela, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. Angela Fernandez is the executive director of the Northern Manhattan Coalition for Immigrant Rights. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Don't forget, you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. Past editions of the show are on our website, wfuv.org slash cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to senior producer Morlene Chin and producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.